Well, good morning. How is everyone this morning? Doing well. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church, and I want to welcome you uh, to week four of our series that we have entitled The Grand Narrative. Now, um, as a part of this series, uh, we've made a certain analogy to kind of help communicate what we're talking about that I I want you to play along with me uh, in this analogy for just a moment. Now, I I want you to just stop and think about your life as a story. And if you think about your life as a story, you can think of different divisions or, as we often refer to, chapters in our life. You may have even used that terminology before, like the closing of one chapter and the starting of another one in your life. Maybe when, when relationship status changes or job status changes or you move to a new location, it's a closing of one chapter and the opening of another. We can often think of our lives as a story, and with that story come multiple pieces. And another way to look at your life or story is like a puzzle. That, that with your life, there's all these different pieces. And a part of our journey in life is figuring out what pieces we have, what kind of pieces uh, we've been given, or you know, another analogy we'll use is what kind of hand you've been dealt. And so part of the journey of life is figuring out the pieces that we have to our lives and how those pieces of our lives or our story fit together. And what we're doing in this series is rather than just talking about our personal or individual stories, uh, we're, we're taking sort of a 30,000 foot view look at the great story, or as we've entitled it, the grand narrative. Not just your story, but the story of all stories, the story of creation and humanity and existence. Now, that is such a big story that it would be virtually impossible for us to stop and look at every piece of the puzzle um, to, to that story. So what we've done is we've broken it up into big chunks because rather than trying to cover every piece of the puzzle, instead we're trying to essentially paint the picture on the box. When you sit down to do a puzzle, the first thing you're going to do usually is set up the box so you can see what picture you're trying to create with these puzzle pieces. And in this series, we're trying to essentially paint the picture of that's on the box. So that way, when you encounter smaller pieces, smaller stories, your story, someone else's story, maybe a story that you read or hear about in the Bible, when you, when you encounter these small stories, these pieces of the picture, you know where they fit. And uh, thus far, this is kind of where we've been uh, along our journey. So if you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, that's okay. We'll catch you up really quickly. In our first week, we talked about creation. And our point here uh, when talking about creation is that you and I were created from communion for communion, meaning God's design for you and I was to live in community and fellowship, or as we would say, communion with him. That was God's design for us. In week two, we talked about how it all went wrong in the fall and how we breached not just a rule, but God's trust, or essentially Adam and Eve, as the story is told, did. And because of the consequences and effects of their fall or their sin or their rebellion, we all suffer the consequences of God's original design for you and I is broken. That the fellowship, the the communion is fractured from what God designed us to live in. But the reason, the big point we made in this week is that you cannot appreciate the solution until you understand the problem. 
So many times when we try to tell the story as Christians, we, we want to start the story with Jesus. Now, he's going to be our focus for next week in this grand narrative. And there's good reasons for why we often want to start the story with Jesus. But when you start there, it's like starting a movie halfway through. Or if you've ever tried to start getting into a new series on Netflix and you start with season three. I mean, you can kind of figure some things out, but you're never going to fully appreciate the whole story. The jokes won't be as funny. The sudden plot twist won't be surprising and dramatic because you don't have the backstory. You can't appreciate the solution until you understand the problem. And that's what we talked about in week two. Last week, in week three, we talked about covenant. That God establishes relationships uh, with his creation, with humanity, uh, to bring about the purpose he designed you and I for. And we actually talked about four different covenants uh, from the Bible. Now, there are a lot of covenants. There's a lot of agreements uh, and, and established relationships that God makes with people in the Bible. But we just focused on four last week, and it was specifically these four. And this is sort of how we laid out this, this theme of establishing covenant. That God's original covenant with Adam was that he was designed to take Eden throughout all of creation. You know, when God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden and it was this representative temple. That, that Eden was that place where God uh, is, lives and, and communes with his creation in perfect harmony. But then God tells Adam and Eve to go to go and to multiply and to grow and to spread and to to subdue the earth. And what we talked about last week is that God's design wasn't that Adam and Eve would leave the garden and then therefore leave his presence, but rather they were to take Eden with them wherever they went. But unfortunately, as we've already seen in this story, things didn't go according to plan. And then we talked about God's covenant with Noah. And ultimately, that boils down to This idea that no matter how dark things get in life, no matter how dark our sin or depravity goes, God doesn't give up on us. Now that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for actions. It doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes punishments that come. But that no matter what happens, God doesn't give up on us or his plan for humanity and creation. And then we talked about the covenant that God made with a guy named Abraham. And he showed up to Abraham and said, what I designed to happen with Eden didn't work, but I'm not giving up on the plan. We're still going to take my presence all over creation, all over the earth. And Abraham, I'm going to start with you. And he told Abraham, I'm going to bless you by doing a number of things. First is I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a place to belong. I'm going to give you a home, which was a great promise because Abraham didn't have that. And then he promised Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, which was surprising again because Abraham and his wife Sarah were old and they couldn't have kids. And then he said, and Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to pour out my blessing to you so that it can flow through you. God actually told Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. You see, God was still at work trying to take his presence and his blessing and his fellowship and his communion to all of creation all around the world. That was the intent with this covenant that God establishes with Abraham. 
And then we see the covenant continue as God makes another covenant with a guy named Moses. And here, the, the lesson that we learned is that relationship always become, comes before rules. As a matter of fact, in this relationship, uh, God establishes this relationship with not only Moses, but with this entire nation called Israel. Now, this was the fulfillment of God's original promise to Abraham because Abraham and Sarah eventually did have a son that they named Isaac. And then, then Isaac had a son that he named Jacob. But God would later rename Jacob, which is Abraham's grandson, Israel. And that's where we get the term for this group of people that started with the family and grew into a nation, Israel or the Israelites. And God sets a covenant, establishes a covenant with these people through Moses with all of the people. And he, he says a number of things, but what's probably most important is as we looked at last week at the end of the covenant, God said, I'm going to make you, the whole nation, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Now, what's the function of a priest? Well, in, in essence, it should be that a priest represents God to people and represents people before God. And that's exactly what God designed for this entire nation in this covenant is that they were going to be the way in which God worked through to take his presence and his ministry and his blessings throughout all of humanity. Again, we see the same theme that just keeps coming up, even though things don't always go according to plan. And as another part of the grand narrative, today our subject matter is on the kingdom. And so this is where we're at in our story. We're at the halfway point as we talk about the kingdom. And specifically today, we're talking about the kingdom of Israel, its role in the Old Testament, and how it's going to set the stage for the climax of the story, which comes next week. Now, we sort of have a big task today because last week we said when we talked about covenants, it was like we had put the edges of the puzzle together. That's usually where you start with a puzzle is you start with the edges because it gives you boundaries but also a frame of reference for where all the other pieces are going to go. And so if last week we put the edges of the piece to, of the, the edges of the puzzle together, this week in many ways we're filling in a significant part of the story. We're filling in a significant part of this puzzle. And here's the part that we're going to try to fill in today. So this is the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now let me give you some perspective to scare you for a minute. Week one of this series, we covered chapter one and two of Genesis. Week two of this series, we covered chapter three of Genesis. Week three of this series last week, we talked about three little portions of Genesis and one portion in Exodus. That took me three weeks. You know how long we're going to be here today? I'm kidding. I promise. I'm kidding. Okay? We are not going to attempt to talk about all of these. We are not going to read a passage from all of these. What I want to do is to help give us an overview for how these 39 books of the Old Testament work together to paint this picture in preparation to for the climax of the story that comes next week. But I don't want us to skip over so much of this foundational story because all of it is preparing the way for how Jesus is going to enter into the picture and why it matters so much. Now, here's what I want to start with um, as we start talking about this grand narrative and how this fits in, is I want to talk about how these books of the Old Testament, these 39 books, are organized because if you don't know this yet, all these books are not in chronological order. 
Now, Genesis, rightly so, the first verse is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that rightly begins, belongs in the beginning. Malachi, which is the last book, is probably the last book written. It's generally what we give credit to the last book written in the Old Testament. So that kind of, we kind of have bookends that are chronological, but not everything in the middle is chronological. And here how, is how your Old Testament is divided. Now, you may not notice these divisions, um, but the Old Testament is not in chronological order. The Old Testament is organized by literary genre exactly how a library is organized. You don't walk into a library and look at the first book on the first shelf and assume it was the first book ever written. You recognize that we recognize that a library is is divided up by genres and then after that usually in alphabetical order by the author. Your Old Testament is organized by genre. Let me walk you through just a little bit of how that works. The first five books carries a a number of names, uh, sometimes the Torah or Torah. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear it referred to as the Pentateuch, which comes from the Greek that just means five implements because there's five books. Um, sometimes this is called the books of Moses or the law of Moses, but essentially the first five books of your Old Testament are under the category of law. Now we talked about last week that relationship always comes before rules. And what happens is we see God establish a relationship with his people And then he does go on to give rules about how we're going to do this together. This is how we're going to take my presence and my blessing and we're going to spread it throughout the earth to all humanity. And so in Exodus, we start to get some law. Leviticus is virtually all law. Numbers is sort of like some stories in between because what happens is, as we've already seen a common theme in the story, is that God says, hey, here's what we're going to do. And then people screw it up. And so God says, hey, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to establish this relationship with you. I'm going to give you some rules for how we're going to do this thing together. And then the first generation to receive these rules, they mess it up. So God has to raise up a whole new generation. That's what happens in Numbers. And then in Deuteronomy, it's the second giving of the law. God gives the law again to a new generation. Then we move into a category of history. So from Joshua to Esther, we're into what we call history. These are generally, though not perfectly, in chronological order, which is convenient. However, there are some differences, right? Like First and Second Chronicles actually is a retelling of the same story. First and Second Chronicles retells the story of Joshua to Second Kings. Because it's written at a different time frame. Even though they're next to each other, the Kings and the Chronicles, they were written at different time periods. As a matter of fact, they were written hundreds of years apart. And Chronicles is written to a very different generation who has very different life circumstances and is trying to help a new generation understand why does all of this history even matter? This stuff is old. Now to you and I, all of it's old. But for the audience of First and Second Chronicles, they were hundreds of years separated from these events. And so it helps answer the question of why does this matter? What is God trying to do? And so you get into the story uh, of the history. This is the timeline of the grand narrative. And then we move into a section that we often call wisdom literature. Again, these are not in chronological order, but this is a section that's trying to give people some common wisdom about how to live all this out. How does all of this go into practice? How does this affect my daily life? Like Job answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people? 
Now, that's an existential question that we often think as modern people we invented, but that is a, a question that is as old as time. As a matter of fact, it's so old that if you were to put Job in chronological order, the, the story of Job would go in between Genesis chapter 11 and 12. That's how old the story of Job is. But it's not trying to tell us about the law, about God's law, which is these five books, and it's not trying to tell us about it, just historical events, though it account, uh, recounts historical events. This is trying to answer a question to help us understand how life works. The Psalms are, okay, how does all of this affect how we worship God? Proverbs is like sitting down with your older grandfather or grandmother, and they're trying to impart wisdom and say, hey, let me tell you how life works. Let me tell you what I've observed in life. Let me tell you what all of these stories teach us. Generally, if you'll live this way, things will go well with you. And generally, if you don't live this way, things are going to go poorly for you. This is how you live a wise life. And this is how you sort of live in all that God designed for us. Ecclesiastes is like when that same older grandfather or grandmother turns cynical. And is like, what does all this matter? Why does any of this happen? What's the point of all this? That's what Ecclesiastes is like. And then you move into what we call the prophets. And there are two major divisions for the prophets. Major prophets, minor prophets. Now you might ask, What's the division for? Uh, are these guys, these major prophets, these five books, are, are they more important? No, they're just longer. That's the only reason they're divided up. These five, really long books. These 12, shorter books. That's how they got uh, put together as they are. Now, here's what's important. When you're reading these prophets, you have to recognize they don't come after all the historical events. All of these are happening during the historical events. So if we were to lay these chronological, the, the prophets are going to sit right next to the history because these prophets are acting in real history. And you may wonder, what is a prophet? Now, a lot of times when we talk about prophecy, we think about predicting the future, and that is not what prophecy is. Prophecy, a prophet is someone who stands up and says, thus declares the Lord. Hey, guys, God has a word for us. God wants to communicate something to us. God has something that he wants to say, an encouragement or a warning. Now, sometimes those encouragements or those warnings have to do with the future. Like, hey guys, remember how God said with Moses back in this covenant he established here? He said, hey, if you'll honor me as God and follow my commandments, then I'm going to continue to bless you and make you a blessing. And oh, by the way, if you decide that you're going to no longer worship me as God, then there's going to be consequences for that. A lot of these prophets are saying, hey guys, we've forgotten about God. And don't forget, he said there'd be consequences for that. So maybe we should clean up our act. And if we don't clean up our act, here's what's coming down the road. Here's what will happen in the future as a result of our actions. So prophecy isn't about predicting the future. It's about declaring God's truth to his people, which sometimes has to do with future events or consequences, rewards, blessings, or punishments. And so this is how 
your Old Testament is divided. And so one of the things that will help you as you are reading this and trying to put the different pieces of the puzzle together with this grand story, this grand narrative, is to start looking. Uh, if you've got a Bible uh, that has any kind of notes in it, it'll often tell you um, when these individuals, these prophets are living and where they fit into the history. And that kind of helps make sense. But what I want us to do briefly is I want us to cover a few points of this timeline. The timeline that starts with Joshua and runs to Esther. We won't cover all the events or even all the important events, but I want to cover some of the timeline that helps prepare us for what is to come in this story. And so as we exit the law section, and as we said, God gives, he establishes relationship, then he gives the rules. The first generation fails. So when a new generation raises up, God gives them the law again. And now these people who are named after Abraham's grandson, they're going to start to see the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham. The land, the nation, and the blessing. And in Joshua, they enter into their own land. And in Joshua, they start to take possession of this land that God had promised them. And then we move into the judges. This is a time frame in which judges sort of guide and lead God's people. Now, when I say judges, don't think of a white curly wig and a gavel. Okay, these judges, they are wild, charismatic warrior types who are there to lead and guide God's people into establishing and creating what God has designed for them. But the sad part of this story is that what we read in, in Judges is over and over the Bible uses this phrase, but the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so rather than acknowledging God for who he is, God, they decided to do things their own way and things start to go poorly. Ruth's story takes place during the time of the Judges. And what happens is Israel, this nation, starts looking around, realizing they're the only ones without a king. So they start begging God for a king. Now there's, this is a problem for, for two reasons. Number one is God was supposed to be their king. See, the tabernacle or the temple was supposed to serve as his palace. He was the one who was supposed to guide and provide and protect his people. The other problem is, just as we saw with Adam and then Noah and then Abraham and then Moses, is that God's people were supposed to be a reflection of God to the rest of the world. But now all of a sudden, Israel started looking around, realizing they were the only ones without a king, and instead, they wanted to be a reflection, not of God, they wanted to be a reflection of other people. Now, God warned these people, you don't want a king. I promise you, it's not all it's cracked up to be. When a human king gets in, into authority, it's only going to create more and new problems. But they continue to ask for a king, and so God granted them their wish. And like We've already seen in this story, God said, well, things aren't going to go according to my plan, but I'll use what's available to continue to spread my name and this blessing that I want to bring to all of humanity. And so we enter into a time where the actual kingdom of Israel begins because they establish a king. Now, here's what's important. When these kings start to sit on the throne, they're anointed. They're actually anointed with oil. You could call it their coronation service when they're anointed with oil and in Hebrew which is what the language your Old Testament is written in in Hebrew the term for anointed one is Mashiach we get our English word Messiah from it later when Greek becomes the dominating language of this part of the world which is why your New Testament is written in Greek 
The, the word, the Greek word for anointed one is Christos. We get our English word Christ from it. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, it's a title. It means Jesus, the anointed one. Now, in this part of the story, it's completely appropriate to refer to Israel's kings as messiahs, at least lowercase m, right? But they are anointed ones. They're anointed by God to do his work, to represent God to the people, and to bring about the fulfillment of all these promises God has made in the covenants. And so the first king that we see jump on to the stage is Saul. And Saul is everything you would want in a king. The Bible describes him as taller than everyone else. He's strong. The Bible even says he's ridiculously handsome, right? He's everything you think a king and a leader should be. The problem is Saul was more interested in advancing his own name rather than God's name. And so God deemed him disqualified to lead his people. And so then we see a new king step up to the plate, David, who is in every way different than Saul. David was exactly what you wouldn't expect a king to be. As a matter of fact, when David's dad, Jesse, heard that one of his sons was going to become the new king of Israel, he didn't even invite David to the meeting because he just assumed David's not kingly enough. He doesn't fit the criteria. But the one thing David had going for him is what the Bible refers to him as a man after God's own heart. Now, this doesn't mean that David was perfect. As a matter of fact, he was far from it. Probably his most well-known screw-up is when he had an affair with a married woman and then the terrible tragedies that ensue because he tried to cover up his own actions. But it's during this time that David's on the throne that God makes another covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now we're not going to read the whole covenant, but I'll touch on just one little piece of it. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says this to David, And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here he promises David that through his lineage will come a king whose kingdom will never end. Now, unfortunately, this promise sets a debilitating and inaccurate expectation for the next king, which is David's son, Solomon. And when Solomon takes the throne... He had a lot going for him, but a lot going against him like the other kings. It was under Solomon's reign that the temple was built. It's under Solomon's leadership that Israel reaches the pinnacle of their power and wealth. But it's also because of the dysfunction in, in Solomon's own household that none of it will last more than a generation. Because it's after Solomon that we enter into a divided kingdom. Essentially a civil war in the kingdom. Things go so poorly that, that things split up. And what you have is you have two regions. In the north, you have a kingdom that we often refer to as Israel. Sometimes you'll re hear it referred to as Rephidim. Uh, but usually it's referred to as Israel. In the south, you have another kingdom that we now refer to as Judah. And so this once great kingdom... It was supposed to be God's representation on earth. That was supposed to be where God would flow his blessings to so they could flow through has now been completely fractured. What we see is in the north, there will eventually be 19 kings in the north and every one of them are terrible. Every one of them are morally corrupt and they lead their people away from worshiping God. 
In Israel, there will eventually be 20 kings, most of them bad, but there's a few bright spots along the way. And so this is sort of what it looks like. Um, there are other nations represented on this map. This is just uh, one of the more clear ones I could find. Uh, and so you have Judah in the south. You have Israel in the north. Now, let me give you some historical context about what's about to happen. So this is a picture of the region. Israel and Judah over here. This is uh, uh, another map that I had to just make work for me. Um, but you have two kingdoms that are really important, that are going to play an important part of the story. And it's Assyria and Babylonia. Here's what's going to happen. Because the people refuse to honor God as God, to follow his rules, to keep his covenant, as God promised, there will be consequences and punishments. God warns through the prophets over and over and over, turn your hearts back to God, turn your hearts back to God, turn your hearts back to God, otherwise there'll be consequences. And one of those consequences was in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire conquered and took over the entire northern kingdom of Israel. Now here's a little side note that just gives you insights into some of this story. As a part of this nation, Israel, you have Jerusalem in the south. That was the capital city for the south. A new capital city named Samaria is created for the north. When the, these people will eventually become known as the Samaritans. That's actually what the Assyrian king who will conquer them calls them. He calls them Samaritans. Because their capital city is Samaria. Now, here's what happens. When the Assyrians conquer the northern tribes, most people are either killed or dispersed. But a few people stay behind. And what they do is they intermarry with this foreign group of people who bring with them not only foreign customs, but foreign religion and foreign gods. And what happens is you have a new group of people that are sort of half-Jewish, half non-Jewish because they adopt, they keep some of their old faith. Uh, they actually keep the first five books of the Bible, but then they start adding in new beliefs and new worship practices. They create a new temple. And so they're sort of half Jewish, half non-Jewish. Now, when you get to the New Testament, you hear about the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament for the Jewish people, the Samaritans are enemies. They're actually, uh, in a pejorative fashion, they're called half-breeds because they were half Jewish, half non-Jewish, because they didn't follow all the Jewish practices. They were hated among Jews. And here's why it's significant. Like in John chapter 4, when Jesus sits down at a well with a Samaritan woman, she was supposed to be shunned. Jesus should never have met with her. As a Jewish male and her a, a Samaritan female, she was off limits. But nobody is off limits to God's grace. That's why the disciples were so shocked when Jesus wanted to spend time with her. Or if you remember from Luke, the story of the good Samaritan. As the story goes, there's a man who's beaten uh, naked and left to die. He's been jumped and, and everything he owns is stolen from him. And here comes a Jewish priest. He sees this man naked and bleeding on the side of the road. And instead of helping, he crosses over to the other side of the street and keeps going. Then comes a Levite, another respected person in the Jewish world, who sees this man, he crosses the street, refusing to help and just keeps moving. And here comes a Samaritan. Here comes the enemy. And the Samaritan stops and he cares for this person. He takes care of them and not only does he do that, he pays their medical bills. 
And so if you were sitting there in the first century listening to Jesus tell this story, it would have been utter shock because Samaritans were the enemies. But Jesus starts to show that God's grace crosses all cultural boundaries, that no one is disqualified from his love or his grace. And so this is why the Samaritans are so hated in the New Testament, because of what took place here. But it doesn't just go bad for the north. It also goes bad for the south, because in 586 B.C., the Babylonians will conquer them. And so in 586 B.C., you're at a place where there is no more land. In many ways, there is no more nation. And on the outside, it's pretty obvious there is no more blessing. These were the three things God had promised to Abraham in the covenant. And so this is when what we call a messianic hope started to spring up. When people started to anticipate a coming Messiah, a coming anointed one, someone God would raise up to bring about the fulfillment of all of these promises. They started looking for a new king, a new leader, a new anointed one who inaugurate a new day. And I want to read for you just a few of the things that are said about this new leader, about the expectations for this new Messiah. Some of these will be familiar, some of them may be new. Isaiah, one of the prophets, looking forward to what's going to come, says this, Behold my servant. This is this expectation of a coming anointed one. Behold my servant, whom, I'm uphold, whom I uphold. This is God speaking. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah is going to continue, and and I want to read a portion of this. This is not going to be on the screen just because it's a little bit long. But I want you to listen, if you're familiar with the New Testament, if any of this sounds familiar, as this expectation of a coming anointed one to bring about what all the failed anointed ones couldn't bring about. Behold my servant, it starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of children of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This is continuing to talk about the anointed one. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to, him, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now this is talking about their future king they're awaiting. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is taking place 800 years before Jesus would show up on the scene. As they started to anticipate this anointed one who would come to fulfill all that the others in the past had failed to bring about. There was this longing and this expectation that one day, One day, someone will come. The Assyrians capture the north and take them into captivity. The Babylonians capture the south and take them into captivity. And they are left with nothing. No home, no temple, no land, no nation, no blessing. But one day, one day, a Messiah, an anointed one will rise up. One day, God will raise someone up to bring about all that we're still waiting to be fulfilled. And then in the closing chapter of the Old Testament, a ray of hope starts to shine. This is the last book in the Old Testament written about 400 years before Christ. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his people. And come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as the days of old. And as in former years, and here's how the Old Testament closes. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The Old Testament closes with a sign of hope. That even though things are dark now, just like we learn in the covenant with Noah, God has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten his people. This hope of all the fulfillment coming to pass is about to enter into a new chapter. The story of the Old Testament closes with a few people getting to return to Jerusalem. They start to rebuild their city. They rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. 
but nothing is ever like it's supposed to be. And they're left waiting, left waiting for God to do something, left waiting for God to step in and do something powerful as they await for an anointed one to come to bring about the fulfillment of their promises. This story, this part of the story in the Old Testament sets the stage for an expectation of what's to come. It shows us how dark things have gotten and ultimately it teaches us this lesson that no amount of human effort is ever good enough. No judge could ever bring about what God wanted. They could win battles but they couldn't win the battle of the human heart. Kings could establish thrones but they could never bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. The prophets could declare warnings but they couldn't actually change the circumstances. They could only describe what they were seeing. But one day, one day, an anointed one will come. One day, a Messiah will show up. God will raise one up to bring about the fulfillment of all these promises. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we have the opportunity to come here today to learn more about this story. This story that as we discover in the coming weeks, we're a part of. This story that reminds us truths that no matter how dark things get, you have not forgotten about us. This reality that no matter how hard we try, we'll never be good enough. We can never do enough. And ultimately, we are desperate on waiting for you to do a work. And God, that's our prayer today. Is that you would continue to do a work in our hearts and in our lives. I'm going to invite you to stay just with your eyes closed and attitude of prayer. As we, as we close our time together in a time of response. A time that we respond to who God is and what he's done. And our response this morning is the goodness of our God that he never gives up, no matter how bad things get. And it's a celebration that we can't do it on our own, that God's going to do it for us. And that's what we sing, that's what we celebrate, that's, that's why we're here, is to celebrate the goodness of our God. who never gives up on us, who in this story continues to pursue us, who continues to do what needs to be done to bring us into that fellowship, that communion that we were always created for. And so as we enter into a time of response, it's your invitation to respond to who God is and how he pursues you and your story. There'll be individuals in the back who would love to pray for you if you're sitting here today and in need of prayer or if you want to stay seated and pray or if you want to stand and sing you respond to who God is as he leads you Lord thank you for our time together this morning would you continue to move and to speak in this place